We're returning to 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel 17. Famous passage, probably the most well-known of all the stories in the Bible. Probably right up there with Noah and the ark. Uh, Probably as well-known as any other story that you might, any other narrative that you might choose. So where are we in the book of Samuel? Remember, Saul was raised up as king. The people rejected God as king, so God gave them what their heart desired and gave them Saul. He was tall, he was rich, he was handsome. And yet he rebelled against God. So Samuel was sent to Jesse's house, and God directed Jesse to anoint, or directed Samuel to anoint David. David wasn't even there at the meeting, if you remember that. They had to go and fetch him because he was so insignificant to the family that he wasn't even called when the prophet came to their house. But we learn in chapter 16 something important about God and how he works. Verse 7, it said that Samuel was not to look on the appearance or the height or the stature. Again, listen to the irony of this considering the next chapter. Do not look at his appearance or the height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks to the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Saul was taller than everyone else. And some of the brothers of David were tall as well, apparently. And David was young and seemingly not as tall. And God told Samuel, I've chosen David. As unlikely as this instrument was, God's chosen instrument to save his covenant people was the shepherd boy. So we're going to read the entire chapter, 1 Samuel 17. It's a long chapter, so please remain seated. Before we read the text, I think we should note that this part of Scripture, when it's preached, at least in my lifetime, has often been bungled. Uh, I don't think maliciously, of course, but it's just a reflect of our humanism and the humanism that pervades our culture We want everything to be about us, so we place ourselves in the various narratives of the Bible. And often when you read this, you place yourself in the narrative as David, killing Goliath. It's taught that this is how we should act in life or something like that, that we should have courage like David and face our enemies like David and conquer our temptations like David. In other words, it's really all about us. This text tells us about us, but it's not the case. This kind of thing rips scripture out of its context and misses the real message often of the scriptures. This chapter is not about us. It's about God. It's not about us slaying our own personal Goliaths. It's about God and his covenant faithfulness to preserve the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent and his attacks to save his people from the attacks of the world and the devil. So it's indirectly about us, but not maybe the way that you've often heard it, at least if you went to churches and heard sermons like I've heard. So as you hear this holy text, focus your thoughts on God's faithfulness to his people, to his covenant people, as they're surrounded by the seed of the serpent. It's chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. This is God's inspired word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, They were gathered at Socah, which belongs to Judah, 
and encamped between Soka and Azekah. And Ephas Damim and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion of Goliath named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. The Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three eldest of sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, Next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth to Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Jesse said to to David, his son, Take for your brothers this ephah of parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the to the camp, to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to an encampment as the host was going out into the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way. 
so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, when he heard, when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you've come down to watch the battle, to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him to another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fear because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear, I took a lamb and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, but he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly, all this assembly, may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. 
Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word. Each part of your word is so encouraging, and yet this part seems to give particular encouragement to your people, the seed of the woman who feel pursued at all times, as your church feels always on the brink of disaster in a world that seems so overbearing. Lord, we know that all things are in your hands, and the Lord does not save by might of spear and javelin and weapons, but the Lord saves, you save, by your holy power from on high. Give us faith to understand and believe the words that we've heard, and we pray in Jesus' name that our hearts would be changed. Amen. So in 1 Samuel 17, there are many relationships in play, and we're going to talk about each one of them over the next few weeks as we look at 1 Samuel 17. There's a relationship that's important between David and Saul as covenant leaders of God's covenant people. That's for a later time. There's, of course, the the relationship in battle between David and Goliath, the men. We'll talk about this as well. But today we're going to talk about... God's seed, his holy seed, the seed of the woman, being pursued by Satan and the seed of the serpents. This narrative is a picture of the struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Really, the whole plot of human history is played out through a redemptive lens based on Genesis 3.15, which says, I will put, this is God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed or offspring and her seed or offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The ultimate seed of the woman was, of course, Jesus Christ. This is our redemption in Christ. God will send a redeemer from the line of promise, from the seed of the woman. And this line of God's people will ultimately prevail over the serpent and all of the seed of the serpent. 
We might feel that our heels are bruised, but the serpent's head is crushed. This points in a perfectly straight line to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment. A few scriptures that were meaningful as I looked at this. Luke chapter 10, verse 18. This is when Jesus sent out the 70 and they were healing and casting out demons and then they came back. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents. Interesting. And scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy, nothing shall hurt you. And we read in Revelation 12, that the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring or on the rest of her seed. It's those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So clearly David is a type of Christ. Jesus himself in Revelation calls himself the seed of David, the root of David, the lion of Judah. So David in a much, much smaller way as a mortal man, shows what God was going to do in an infinitely more valuable way thousands of years later when he fought Goliath. What was a shadow in the Old Testament is made clear in the New Testament. This is more than just a bedtime story. This is what I hope you take away from this. And it's not about you killing your Goliaths. This is a a beautiful, wonderful picture of God's power and His faithfulness to preserve His seed. And it points directly to the defeat of Satan by the death of our Lord on the cross. That's why we have the interesting title of the sermon, a sermon that's looking at David and Goliath being called the serpent and the woman. So let's look at the text I'm only going to get through the first 11 verses probably today, but it's still uh, a wonderful text. There's much to learn. Verses 1 and through 3, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were at Socha, which belongs to Judah, so they're invading the territory of Judah, encamped between Socha and Azekah. Saul and the men were on one side of the valley of Elah. They drew up for battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines were on the mountain on the other side. So who are the Philistines? We've discussed them a few times before, but it's probably helpful to remember who these people are because they play a prominent role in the history of Israel. They dominated the people of Israel for many generations. They are thought to have maybe come from Crete or one of the Greek islands to the Mediterranean coast near modern-day Gaza. Actually, it's called Gaza at that time as well. Uh, But they were in conflict For Abraham, they were in conflict with Abraham, in conflict with Isaac, as early as 2000 B.C. And now here, five or six hundred years later, we see them still in conflict with the children of Abraham. You remember Samuel's primary fight was with the Philistines. Samson's primary fight was with the Philistines as well. So from the beginning, the Philistines were deadly enemies of God's people the seed of the serpent, bent on destroying the seed of the woman, the line of Abraham. And not only that, their military might was unstoppable. 
overwhelming. They had made the Israelites within their reach their slaves. They were efficient, well-organized, and yet they were pagan people and they worshipped many foreign gods, primarily Dagon, who was presumed to be the father of Baal. It's interesting, we had uh, some neighbors in Japan and they they told us they were atheists. They were a bit strange. And they named their son Dagon. Couldn't believe it. It's like, do you realize you've named your son after a foreign god, a demon? Yet his name was Dagon, spelled exactly like Dagon. It's horrible. Dagon was the fish god. They lived next to the coast, so it made sense that they would worship a fish god. He was displayed as half fish and half human. So you remember, this fish god was humiliated when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon, and Dagon fell. First his hands fell off, his head fell off. He was broken before Yahweh. So they had gathered about 14 miles west of Bethlehem. So if uh, Israel is basically a north-south kind of narrow country, if you go to the west of Bethlehem, uh, from your perspective this way, Sorry, this way, west of Bethlehem, there's the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Toward the sea, 14 miles, toward the land of the Philistines. Which, by the way, was the inheritance of Judah that they had never taken. If you go to Israel today, you can still visit the Valley of Elah. And we think the terrain is about the same as it was, amazingly. You can visit the Valley of Elah and you can see where we think the battle took place. Which is fascinating to me that you might be able to walk in the same area within the same stone's throw as where Goliath fell. So this is the setting of the battle. It really happened. These are real people and you should trust God's word that this is true. The superiority of the Philistines lined up on one side with their inferiors, their slaves on the other side with this backdrop. Now let's continue in the text, verse 4. There came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. The description of Goliath is impressive, and Samuel goes on and on about Goliath and his armor just so that everyone feels the weight of how terrifying this man was. He makes a point of showing how scary this giant really was. You were wondering why this picture is in your bulletin. Now I actually want you to look at it. I don't do gimmicks. I don't do little cute things. There's a reason. Because Samuel made such a point of showing the exact height of Goliath, I wanted you to see with your eyes what that looks like. This is Robert Waldo, the tallest man who's lived in modern times. He was a nine-footer, eight feet, 11 inches tall. Goliath, we think, was about nine and a half feet tall, so another six inches. Robert Waldo was very sickly. He had a a medical condition which caused him to grow so, so tall. Goliath was not sickly at all. So imagine someone this height and the man to the right of Robert is probably about 5'8", 5'9", 5'10". This is about the tallest we could imagine David would be. 
So he's facing someone almost twice his height. And Samuel wants us to know this. This man is intimidating. Okay, don't look at it anymore. This man is intimidating. He is extremely tall. David is about half his size. He was a champion of the Philistine people. A seasoned warrior, battle-hardened, probably never been defeated in battle. He's never lost. And Samuel goes on to describe all of his armor. For a reason, of course. The helmet of bronze, probably polished to a shiny bright glow, had some red feathers or cloth down the middle of it to look terrifying. He wore a coat of mail that weighed 125 pounds. I was trying to think about how I could explain how heavy this coat is. If you've ever picked up a 40-pound bag of feed and put it on your shoulder and tried to do two of them, that's just 80 pounds. For me, that's heavy. Three of those would be 120 pounds. That's how much his coat of mail weighed. The tip of his spear was 18 pounds, and his spear was like a weaver's rod. It's probably about eight feet long. If the tip of the spear weighed 15 pounds, imagine how long the weaver's rod of bronze, the spear of bronze would have to be just to balance out that weight so that it would throw well. His sword which was probably of the style of the Greek short sword for close combat, wasn't so short because he was so tall. So for him it was a short sword. For everyone else it was probably a broad sword. But David later describes this sword as being very special. He says there's nothing like it. So this is the enemy that David faced. I think our application is to remember that the seed of the serpent always looks overwhelming and formidable. When we look at the world, when we look at those who rule this world, on behalf of Satan, who do his bidding, they look powerful, they look scary, they look very well put together, they look like they are invincible. But we're not to be frightened, we're not to be dismayed. For the Lord our God is with us. Goliath himself, where did he come from? He was one of the great five Philistine cities. He came from Gath. And Gath, again, was part of the inheritance of Judah that had never been taken. Gath was one of the places in Joshua chapter 11, verse 21, where we read that the Anakim still remain. The Anakim were a giant people. So it's suspected that Goliath probably came from the Anakim and that he had assimilated into the Philistine culture. These giants at that time still lived on the earth. And after the flood, there were a number of people groups that were unusually tall by modern standards. And Goliath seems to have come from one of these gene pools. Later in First Chronicles 20, we read that there were four more giants in his family that either David or David's servants killed. Also, when Moses and Israelites invaded the land of Canaan, we read that Og, king of Bashan, slept on a bed that was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. He apparently was a giant as well. And the, the spies that went into the land the first time were terrified. They said, we look like grasshoppers before these people. They're so big. 
When we hear Goliath described, when we hear these Jews terrified of Goliath in his taunts, we shouldn't be surprised because that's how we react often when we see the world. We see those who control the governments, the businesses of the world. They seem so powerful and so mighty. But we're not to be afraid. So Goliath himself, he's a descendant of the Anakim from the bloodline of the ancient enemies of the people of God. This is not a new enemy. This is the old enemy of the children of Abraham. I don't think the Jews, I don't think the Hebrews were surprised that Goliath showed up. He's just big. And he's intimidating. And he shouts to the ranks of Israel in verse 8. He stood and shouted at them. He's barking orders at them. Send out your champion to fight me. He says that someone should come out in single combat, which was not uncommon for that era. And each would represent his own people. But this is more than a call to single combat between a Philistine and a servant of Saul. As I said, I believe this is a snapshot of the conflict between the seed of the serpent, the spiritual descendants of Satan, and the seed of the woman, the covenant people of God. Most fully realized when Jesus came and defeated Satan on the cross. This is a reflection of the representative head of our people, Jesus. And as Ephesians 2 describes those who are unregenerate, following the ruler of this air, of the air. Notice the Philistine defies the ranks of Israel. He doesn't just ask to fight. He defies them. He wants to embarrass them. The covenant people of God were mocked and cursed and chastised by this proud and undefeated and intimidating, confident giant. He wanted not only to defeat the people of Israel, but to defy them. And lest you think that I'm just analogizing this particular battle, it actually was thought that if they came to single combat, that you were representing not only your people, but your God. Goliath thought that if he defeated whoever came to fight him, that his God, Dagon, was actually defeating Yahweh. So certainly, if they thought it, we can see how it must truly reflect a greater spiritual reality. They were all greatly afraid. They had forgotten all the great works God had done, and the Hebrews were terrified. They were dismayed and greatly afraid, verse 11 says. They had forgotten all of the the different times that God had come and defeated His enemies, their enemies. And certainly it's our temptation as well to forget all the faithfulness that God has shown us when we feel attacked, when we feel threatened as an individual or as a family or as a church. We need to fix our eyes on our King, our representative head. Not on the dragon, not on the serpent not on the one pursuing us. The dragon has one goal, and that's to destroy the people of God, to defy God himself. 
the book of the Revelation certainly is helpful to see that dynamic. So Goliath and every standard bearer of the serpent since then are the same. Boastful, haughty, offering up blasphemous words against God, his name and his dwelling and his people. In the text in Revelation 13 that we read, we see that he is, I'll just read it. He opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. In the book of the Revelation, those who dwell in heaven is always referring to Christians, to the seed of the woman. And all the authority was given over tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. All through the book of the Revelation, those who dwell on earth are referring to the seed of the serpent, always. So in Revelation, we see this whole thing framed out, and we see the end. Satan loses. God wins. The serpent maybe has bruised the heel of the church, but the seed of the woman, Jesus himself, crushed the head of Satan. Paul leans on this analogy, this picture in Romans 16, verse 20. And he applies it to the church. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So when you look at the seed of the serpent today, when you look at the world and all of its powerful officials at the local level, at the state level, at the national level, or at the worldwide level, they're immoral and boastful, despotic politicians, self-serving lawyers, really, really rich people businessmen, kings and generals, prime ministers and popes, strutting around the world and boasting of their power, stomping on those whom they were supposed to serve, stripping citizens of rights and property and liberty. And you're tempted to feel overwhelmed. The serpent might really be invincible. This giant might really be someone who will crush me. And you're tempted to run and hide and to be terrified when you hear the boasts and the power of the modern Goliath, remember that we know the end of the story. The seed of the serpent always looks intimidating, but God wins. Our God reigns. This is why this is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. God has given us his word. We know that he wins, so we should be patient. He's coming again. He'll return in glory and power and might. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, remember that the first time Christ came, he did not come as a king in pomp and circumstance, as a warrior with armor. He came as a poor child, born of poor parents in a stable. He wasn't handsome or rich like Saul or tall and intimidating like Goliath, but rather Isaiah 53 tells us he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him at all. And yet this was the man who defeated Satan by living perfect obedience before his father, dying on a cross as our substitute. He paid for the sin of his people, for the seed of the woman, from Adam until the end of the world, and he crushed the serpent under his feet with the shedding of his own blood. As we approach the table today, 